Mighty God, thank you for these moments that we've had together to worship you. It's powerful, like Jessica mentioned, to sing together for our voices to be united. Your voice, we know, comes through clearly when we hear your word. And it's a privilege to hear your word. We're mindful that for many people in the church around the world, they got to do this secretly. They got to do this without people knowing what's going on. And thank you that we have the freedom to do this here. Bless those who are worshiping in secret. And may their, their experience of your word transform their communities. Bless us now as we look at these really important words about our ancestor Abraham. May we be encouraged and inspired by his story this morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Good morning, all of you. It's good to see you again. Uh, How many of you have not seen the movie The Lion King, the original animated version of The Lion King? Anybody not seen The Lion King? Okay, great. Uh, It is one of the only Disney movies based on Shakespeare. Anybody know what story it's based on? Hamlet, thank you. Oh, see, fellow English major. There we go. Uh, I love The Lion King, and one of my fun, one of my kind of joys right now as a parent is my kids are six, four, and eighteen months. Uh, I'm getting to show them the movies that I kind of grew up on, and so The Lion King was in this incredible run that the Walt Disney Company had for most of like my childhood, so like late 80s, early 90s, where they just seemed to be bringing out a new movie every year, and they were really good, right? Like, to varying degrees, some were not as good as others, but The Lion King, I think for most people, is an incredible Disney movie. I mean, they turned into a Broadway show, there's a live-action version of it coming out next year, which I don't really know how that works with lions, but okay, I'm sure it'll be good. I read into a little bit of the history of the movie, so this is just fascinating to me because I love movies. Um, Starting in kind of the late 80s, Disney decided they were going to have two teams working on different movie projects at different times through their animation studios. So obviously an animated movie takes a really long time to make because, you know, you have to animate it. (laughs) And you got to get the story right because there's no going back and doing reshoots on an animated movie. you got to redraw the thing and all of that. So around the late 80s, they split up into two teams, and I'm not kidding. I mean, I read this online, so it must be true. There was A team and B team for Disney. They had a group that they designated as their best animators and composers and story writers and all that, and they were working on some high-profile projects. And then they had B team, who were also great, but were working on other projects. They wanted to keep this stable of people employed so that they would have these movies rolling out year after year after year. So 1989 was The Little Mermaid. Raise your hand if that's your favorite Disney movie. Okay, great. Uh, 1991 was Beauty and the Beast. Anybody, that's your favorite? Okay. Live action one, I haven't seen, heard it was great. Uh, 92 was Aladdin. Anybody, that's your favorite? Okay, great. Live action coming out of that as well. I'm not being paid by Disney to say this, by the way. (laughs) Then in 1994 came The Lion King. Now, guess which team was working on The Lion King, A team or B team? It was the B team. The B team was working on The Lion King. P.S., if your B team includes Elton John (laughs) writing lyrics, like what? That's your B team? Like, are you kidding me? Now, what was the A team working on? Pocahontas, which came out the next year. Now, I will admit, I'm biased. I like The Lion King better than I liked Pocahontas. If that's what the A-team came up with, great, good for them. That's their work. I think history will probably say The Lion King ended up being one of the superior films of that time. And we're studying the Book of Romans. What does this have to do with Disney at all? 
because we always like to divide into an A team or a B team. Everybody likes to think that they're on the A team, especially in our culture, especially in the industries that I know so many of you work in. It is so important that you got this promotion. It is so important that your team is looked upon favorably within your company. Nobody wants to be on the B team. And yet one of the things that we learn in the gospel, and if you could retitle today's sermon, you could call it the gospel according to Abraham. One of the things we learn through Abraham's story in Romans chapter four is that it doesn't even matter what team you are on. What has been given is faith, and faith is the way that we know we are in right relationship with God. And in the church that Paul was writing this letter to, there were a lot of people that believed they were on the A-team because they were Jewish. They were, con- they were converts to Christianity, but they were Jewish, and they thought, man, my history, my background, my family legacy, that means I'm on the A-team. And then there were Gentiles in this church who said, hey, we're on the A-team. We didn't get wrapped up in that whole Judaism thing. We don't know anything about that, but we are definitely the A-team. We are God's chosen people. As we've said in prior weeks in this series, the only way to unite diverse and divided people is through the truth. And so Paul's goal in writing this incredible letter to the Romans is to help bring unity through the truth. And honestly, isn't that a great mission for the church to be about right now? If you're feeling the weight of this divided time, this polarizing climate that we're in, wouldn't you like to be someone who unites rather than divides further? That is what we are trying to do together as a church through the study of Romans. What we'll see together in the text today is that the gospel is not about, are you on A team or B team? Did you make the Lion King or did you make Pocahontas? Romans 1 through 3 has been making the case that faith is not about what you do, but about who you are relying upon. Today we're going to see Paul kind of dismantle the A-team dynamics, and there's an outline for this in your bulletin that'll kind of help guide our conversation today. Our thesis goes like this, a right relationship with God comes through faith. That's it. It is not about being on the right team. It is about where you put your trust. And we're going to see this played out through three main ideas highlighted in your bulletin. There's a person, Abraham. There's a people, us. And then there's some next steps that we need to take together. So who is Abraham? Who is this guy? If you grew up around church, you probably did all kinds of stuff with him, flannel graphs, all the fun sort of Abraham things. We're just going to kind of go back and do a quick overview of who he is. We're going to talk about it in two different ways. Who is he in history and who is he in terms of what we understand about his faith? So in history, Abraham is an incredibly important figure, not just to the Christian faith, but to Jewish folks and to people who belong to Islam. The Quran actually identifies Abraham as a friend of God and an ancestor of Prophet Muhammad. This is fascinating. I read about this this week. When our Muslim friends and neighbors pray, they turn to face Mecca, right? If you are actually in Mecca, you're supposed to turn and face a building, the special holy shrine that according to Islamic history was built by Abraham and his son Ishmael. So there is a focus on Abraham within that faith that is really, really important. So who is Abraham to Christians? Who is he to people who are trying to follow the God of the Bible? Verse 1 of our text identifies him in a very particular way, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today. So if you have your Bible app, you want to turn it to the New Living Translation, I'd encourage you to do that. Here's what verse 1 of chapter 4 says. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. Now, if you've just jumped into this sermon series with us, why in the world is Paul talking about Abraham right now? Here's my theory, and there are a lot of different theories around this. Paul is speaking to a church that's divided, people who have a Jewish background, people who don't, 
Abraham was a super big deal to those folks. He's the father of their faith, right? I think what he's doing is he is helping bring those folks who identify with Judaism into the conversation around what the gospel really is by taking one of their heroes and not dismantling him, but saying, look, let's honor who this guy is. Paul himself, being a Jew, wants to honor him. And he wants to give those Gentile Christians in the church a way to relate to their Jewish neighbors and friends. You see this? They're sharing faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's giving them another opportunity to kind of rally around similar figures in their faith together. I think that's what he's trying to do here, at least rhetorically. In Matthew's gospel, Abraham is identified as the ancestral father of David, who is then connected to Jesus. Abraham comes up in Jesus's genealogy. So he's in Jesus's family. He's in his ancestry. Verse 16 in the text today tells us he's the father of all who believe. Anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ has some kind of connection back to Abraham. Now, this is great. History, wonderful. We can hold this objectively at a distance, can't we? How about we try to personalize this a little bit? Who helped you step into your faith? Who came up to you at some point in your life and they opened up a Bible? Or they taught a Sunday school class? or they were a youth group leader, or they were your young life leader, or they were somebody who you could say, even though your ancestry may not go back quite as far as Abraham, that really was the person that brought faith into your life. Maybe they weren't right about everything. Maybe they brought faith into your life in a way that was kind of hard. But they are part of that ancestry for you. Who was that for you? For me, uh, a lot of it actually happened in my own family. My mom and dad did a really great job of modeling faith for me, particularly in their diligence. I remember them being very diligent people. We would pray together often. We were always going to worship. My dad has been a member of Bible Study Fellowship for going on 40 years. These were outward signs to me as a kid of people who were longing to know God and people who were seeking him actively. Later on in my life, I got to be close to one of my grandfathers, my mother's father, and he was actually the first person that introduced me to like Bible scholarship and theology and commentaries and kind of the life of the mind, Christian scholarship. And I learned through him that to be hungry for more of God is a good thing. And that's part of how I'm wired. And I'm so thankful for their lives and their witness, and yet I recognize that that is a great gift that has been given to me, and not everybody has that gift. Not everybody has had that level of investment. And whether you did or not, I think one takeaway for us from Abraham's story is that we are called to invest in the generations. We'll talk more about how Abraham was connected to this great promise from God. One of the things we talk about at Bethany is passing the torch of leadership from generation to generation. Abraham, just through these brief witnesses from Romans and from other parts of the New Testament, he's connected to so much more than himself. He may not have known, he may not have thought to himself, well, you know, I should pass the torch of leadership. He just lived out his faith. And in so doing, an entire nation of people were able to follow and love God. Paul was influenced by Abraham. People who've been influenced by Paul, therefore, have been influenced by Abraham. As you read Romans 4, I'd encourage you to read it devotionally this week. Ask yourself, how am I passing the torch of leadership? How am I investing? There are ways for you to invest in our kids and in tweens here at church. Maybe you need to be doing some investing at work. Maybe there's a new person that just came onto your team. They're brand new. They need your help. They're looking to you for leadership. That kind of helpless, pathetic look you keep seeing on their face. You can do something about that. You can go help them be less pathetic. You can do it. 
That is one of the things that we can step into when we talk about taking, passing the torch of leadership seriously. So that's a little bit about Abraham's history. Now let's talk about his faith. And these are two very brief points I'd make about his faith. He was chosen by God. And because of this, he gives us a clear picture of the gospel. He was chosen by God. And because of this, he gives us a clear picture of the gospel. How do we know he was chosen by God? Because the text tells us he was chosen by God. I'm going to summarize verse 10 for us because it talks about circumcision and different kind of important things in the Jewish tradition. Verse 10 essentially says that before Abraham followed God, before he stepped out in faith, before he extended the hand of fellowship to God, God drew him to himself. God has always drawn people to himself first. Abraham entered into covenant relationship with him because God made promises to him. God gave him freedom to live into that because God initiated that relationship. This was not set in motion by any external factors. Abraham did not go through some high-level religious training or a jaw-dropping conversion story or anything like that. God chose to do that work in him before he could respond in faith. And we're going to talk a little bit more in the sermon about how, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christ follower, how do you remember that? How do you remember that God started this thing? God is doing this thing in you to lead you forward in faith. It was not because you were so great. It's because he is. How do we remember that? We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to talk about the gospel because this is such good news. What kind of faith did God build with Abraham? He built a gospel-centered faith. We see this picture in verse 13. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham, this was the promise he made in Genesis 15, to Abraham and his descendants, was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes through faith. That's our thesis, a right relationship with God that comes through faith. Relationship is the key to the gospel. Paul makes this clear again and again and again. It's not about Abraham's kindness or his virtuous nature nature or the fact that he liked puppies. It was about the work that God did in him through this promise. And that is the gospel. This is where we make the transition to part two. Who am I? Who are we? If you are following Jesus Christ, you are someone who has been given this same gift. Now, if you thought for just a minute ago about like that person who is a big hero to you in your faith, someone who's kind of an ancestor for you, it's kind of easy to be like, oh man, they were great. They, you know, they never did anything wrong. We always do this to our heroes, right? Like we always build people up to the degree that's like, yeah, they, they weren't actually like that, right? Like they struggled. They had moments where they weren't sure about their faith. But the presumption there is something I want us to lean into. We often think when we meet someone great in faith and we remember them, wow, they must be a really amazing person because their faith obviously is so strong, right? Like they must be so great to have received such a great gift. The text tells us that nothing was great about Abraham. Nothing was great about him. What gave him high standing with God was nothing. There was no ancestry before him. If he's the father of many nations, there was no credibility before him. He was just some guy. A lot of scholars believe he was just kind of this nomadic wanderer. He wasn't connected to any faith tradition whatsoever. He's kind of revolving around the wilderness, looking for a place to settle in, kind of a shepherd, not really sure what he does for a living. And that's exactly where God starts with him. A commentary I read this week put it this way. The place at which Paul begins with Abraham is the same place we must begin ourselves if we would be saved. It is the acknowledgement that there was nothing in Abraham that could have commended him to God. Now, 
if you have friends in the secular community, let's say you're a Christ follower and you have coworkers and you tell them about going to church, you tell them about the Bible study you're involved in or any of these other things, most of the time, people who are not part of a faith community go, oh, that's great. You're a very diligent person. You put a lot of effort into your faith. You work hard at that. Good for you. And they're, they're sincere. I, I really do think they're sincere about that. But that's just a short leap away from assuming that our faith is something that we earn. And Abraham turns that whole equation upside down. There is no prerequisite for Abraham to experience the salvation that God gives to him. There was no Christ for him to have faith in that he knew of, and yet Christ was at work in his life. And so for all of us, this gift is always going to be something we have to wrestle with because our tendency is to go toward behavior, is it not? Our tendency is to pretend like we need to earn this. Paul knows this, and that's why he talks about this in Romans 4, 4, and 5. He uses the analogy of earning money, of making wages. Listen to this. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. When people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, or excuse me, but people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in the God who forgives sinners. Does your paycheck include a gift receipt? It's not a gift. It's your paycheck. You have a W-2. It says this much money was paid to you, and this much was held out for health care, and this much was this, and this much was this. You did not get a gift receipt for your pay stub this week. They're not the same thing. We have to pay taxes on our income. Otherwise, we get in trouble. The text tells us that we are not paying taxes. We are not earning income with our Heavenly Father. The text tells us that ordinary people like you and me, like Abraham, we can enjoy God's blessing and his promise-keeping faithfulness, not because we go to our jobs, not because we earn salvation, not because showing up to Bible study makes us righteous, but because God has forgiven us and we have been able to put our faith in him. Nothing commended Abraham to God. Nothing commends you or I to God. Nothing. We know this and yet we forget this. One of the ways I want us to try to remember this is to think about it positively in the week ahead. I want us to think about joy for just a minute. Can you say that with me? Joy. Let's think about joy together. Okay, you got to say joy with a smile on your face, right? Go down the page just a little bit to verses six six through eight. Here's where I'm getting this from. This is how we're going to remember this in the week ahead. Paul, to further prove his point, quotes David, right? So you've got Abraham, and then a few generations later, you've got David, and now you've got Jesus. And Paul is saying this. Listen to this in verse 6. David spoke of this, this sort of behavior gift dynamic, when he described the happiness of those who were declared righteous without working for it. And this is where he quotes the Psalms. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. What joy. What a great song for us to have sung earlier. What a great reminder here and now. What joy. Where is your joy coming from right now? Where is your joy coming from right now? It is a joyful thing for me to think that right now in our worship, our kids are also learning about Abraham in their Sunday school lesson. So parents, there's your lunchtime conversation. What did you guys learn about Abraham? Oh, we learned about Abraham. That, that makes me happy that our kids are learning similar things to what we're learning around right now. The way you answer what brings you joy tells a lot about you. For me, uh, this is just who I am. I get a lot of joy in reading a really great book. 
Like I get excited to read a book that I'm really into. I like to get caught up in the story or the ideas. I find joy in just slow time with my family, with my friends. I find joy in my kids as they discover who they are. And as we goof around together as a family, I find joy in my marriage. And honestly, I find joy in each of you. Because when we come together and we worship and we're making small groups and we're seeing this life that God has for us, it's amazing. And God gives me great joy in seeing you gathered together this morning. Where do you find your joy? If you're like me, the biggest enemy to your joy is speed. Moving too quickly. We move so fast. We go from one thing to the next. We don't rest. We don't take Sabbath seriously. I'm including myself in this. And we miss it. We miss it. The other day, I went on a walk with uh, my two big kids, and I left my phone at home. I just wanted to leave it behind. We walked and got donuts, and I was able to be completely present with them, and it was joyful for me. And it didn't matter when we got back. We just, we had all the time in the world. I could be present with them because I slowed down, and I left the thing at the house. I left my phone. Didn't miss a thing. Nobody called. Nobody texted. I felt great. Bethany, slow down this week. Take your time. Leave your phone behind. Find your joy. Don't get caught up in the pace. Find your joy and really lean into it. So what have we learned so far? A right relationship with God comes through faith. This creates joy. Abraham modeled this for us. The gospel, belief in Christ, it is a gift. Now we need to kind of start coming toward our conclusion by talking about a really important part of Abraham's story. And that's the hope that he had when God gave him his promise. This is so important. If you're feeling like you are missing out on some hope right now, if you're feeling some despair, if you're feeling discouraged in your work or your parenting or in your job, listen, this is going to be good. God made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. Remember, Abraham's wandering around in the wilderness. He doesn't know anything about God. He has not done anything to kind of draw God to himself. Then Abraham encounters God. It says here in Genesis 15, the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And then somehow, this is just so interesting to me, God leads Abraham outside. I don't know if that means that God showed up and walked with Abraham or he just led him in his mind. But this is Genesis 15 verse 5. God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. The Jews in the congregation that Paul was writing this letter to, they would have immediately known that story. They would have treasured it. They would have celebrated it as part of their history. And that promise that Abraham received was for an heir, but it was for more than an heir. It was for an incredible family to spread across time, spread across the world, someone to carry on this important legacy of following God long after Abraham was gone. Now, when Abraham received that promise, there was a problem. Abraham was really old, like really, really old. But they think, some scholars think between 80 and 100 years old. That's older than anybody in this room, trust me. I have not met too many new fathers who were drinking insure while they were holding their baby. And yet this was the problem. This was the promise that was extended to Abraham. And Abraham, the text tells us later on, actually laughed at God. God said a promise to him and he said, right, that's going to happen. That's impossible. God can handle your laughing and my laughing and our doubts and even our surly cynicism because he still kept his promise to Abraham. 
Here's how the message translation kind of frames it. Abraham doubts, he laughs at God, he struggles with this promise, and here's what the message says. Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence and say, it's hopeless, this hundred-year-old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah, his wife's decades of infertility, and just give up. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise, asking cautiously skeptical questions. Here's the phrase. He plunged into the promise. Can you say that with me? He plunged into the promise. Think about diving headfirst into a swimming pool or diving into the lake. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, came up ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. That's why it said Abraham was declared fit before God by trusting God to set him right. Do you feel like there's something impossible in your life right now? Do you feel like there is a place where hope is just gone? Do you feel feelings of despair or isolation or like, I cannot climb this mountain. I cannot get back in my desk and do that work anymore. It is just too hard. You need to pay attention to those feelings. But I think one of the things we learn here from Abraham is that God's promises push us past our immediate feelings and call us to count on him to be faithful. It's not to do away with feelings. Your feelings matter. But if that is sitting on the throne in how you are trying to engage the work of God in your life, that's going to be a challenge. Maybe feelings aren't really the challenge for you. Maybe it's, God, this is an irrational thing that you're asking me to do. You're asking me to move my family across the country. You're asking me to start a new business. You're asking me to go out of my way to spend time with this coworker that I don't even like. Whatever challenge God is putting in front of you that is bouncing off of your logic or your reason, that is something you need to pay attention to. It may not be your feelings that he is, that he is trying to work through. It may be our devotion to logic. Faith in Christ will push us through those barriers. For Abraham, it wasn't logic, reason, feelings, any of those things. It was just simply the fact that he turned to God and said, I trust you. I believe in you. And what do we see over and over again? We learned this last week in our text. God always keeps his promises. He never holds the short end of the stick. He is always leading us into something glorious and good, and we have to trust him. Jill and I got married uh, 10 years ago, so 2008. And some of you, I think, were around here during that time. And there was a weather event in December of 2008. Anybody was here for the snowpocalypse? Okay. So if you grew up in the Midwest, you're like, oh, please. This is not snow. This was a big deal for the Seattle area in 2008 because we don't have an infrastructure to deal with snow. We just say, good luck. Put on your mountain bike tires. So epic snow is falling the week that Jill and I are supposed to get married, and we're living in Tacoma at the time. And it was really cool because, I mean, you don't see a lot of cars out on the road. Things are kind of quiet. People are calling into work like, I can't get out of my driveway. Now, the week of your wedding, when you're a bride or a groom, can be a stressful time. If there is a massive weather event the week of your wedding, that can compound your stress if you've experienced this. And so the day of our wedding comes, and I heard about this kind of anecdotally later on because I was off kind of getting ready myself. Uh, according to some who witnessed this, my wife was at her house getting ready for the wedding, and she looks out on the front yard, she looks out on the snow and goes, isn't this amazing? What a beautiful day. What an awesome thing. Our pictures are going to be gorgeous. This is going to be so cool. How wonderful to get married in the midst of all this snow. And I highlight that because I love my wife, and I love that that was her attitude. 
But I don't think you can just do that. I think you have to have faith in God's power and an incredible appreciation for his beauty and his goodness to be able to look at snow on your wedding day and go, this is going to be great. This is going to be fun. And that, I think, was transformative, not just for her, but also for me and for the people who were around her at the time. When we face something that might seem hopeless, and snow on your wedding day, it is not hopeless. Like, you're going to be fine. But when we face things that are of greater severity, of greater stress, we can disproportionately worry about those things. And instead, in those moments, what if we looked at the snowstorm and we said, how beautiful. How beautiful. What a great thing that God is doing right now. That's not naivety. That's not get a new perspective. It's knowing the one who keeps their promise and that they're going to take care of you. It's the joy that comes with knowing who Christ is and what he has done for us and how that shapes not just one day, but the reality of every day. There's a line that I want to come back to as we close that I think is so beautiful, this plunged into the promise of God. That's what Abraham did according to the message translation. He plunged into the promise of God. And I, as I studied this week, as I thought about our community, I thought, how, how do we take that home? Like, how do we, like, can I put that and just, like, have it floating in front of me all week long? He plunged into the promise of God. He trusted God. How would that work in real life? Here's my theory. I think when Abraham looked at the stars for the rest of his life, he remembered the promise. Remember, God took him outside of his tent, showed him the stars, and said, so shall your family be, so shall your descendants be. Bethany, go out this week and look at the stars. And remember that God has promised to care for you. Remember that God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Remember that you are beloved in his sight. Look at the stars. Abraham walks out of his tent. He's discouraged. He's not seeing any movement on this promise. They're not able to get pregnant. It's tough. And he looks up at the stars and he says, yeah, God said that's how big my family is going to be someday. I think I can trust him. This is the way forward. The way forward is the theme of our sermon series. And the way forward for us today is through faith. It's not through enslaving ourselves to our addictions or to becoming tied to our emotional whims or steely devotion to logic and reason. But it's this right relationship with God that comes through faith. Can you remind yourself of that this week by just looking at the stars? One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is when Jesus is being baptized. And his cousin John baptizes him at the Jordan River. And it must have been just an incredible moment, right? Like I picture this arid landscape and this river cutting through and there's a little vegetation on the sides. And Jesus comes into the water and he has this dialogue with John. John baptizes him. And if you remember the story, the heavens open up. There's this incredible event. And God speaks these words over Jesus. Maybe this is the promise you need to hear this week. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Remember, he says this in such a way that the whole community can hear it. Everybody that's around Jesus hears those incredible words that are his identity, that are a promise that give him strength and power that he never could have imagined moving forward. He trusted God. And so, friends, this week, remember that you are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter. Teresa, you are a beloved daughter of God. He is well pleased with you. And Joe, you are a beloved son of God, and he is well pleased with you. 
These are the promises that God has given to us. Corey, you are his beloved son. He is proud of you. He has called you. He believes in you. That is our identity, friends. It's nothing else. It's not your title. It's not your prestige. It's not your degree. It's that, Elizabeth, you are a beloved daughter of God. And he believes in you. And nothing will shake you from that identity. This week, let that be the claim that God brings into a new way into your heart. Name it for yourself. You want to look in the mirror and say it to yourself? That ain't weird. Because these are the words of God for you. Remind it to your spouse. Remind it to your roommates who also follow Jesus Christ. This is my daughter, Maddie, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Nothing can withstand the power of God to keep his promises. Remind yourself of those promises this week. Let's join our hearts together now as we pray. Mighty God, thank you that you look at each of us so deeply pleased in us. And yet it's so hard for us to remember that. We struggle. We get distracted. We got all kinds of other things that we think about. And yet the one thing that we know you want us to remember and believe, just like you said to Abraham, that you are a promise-keeping God, that your faithfulness is from generation to generation, and that includes this generation. So God, as we go forth in just a little while to serve you and to go teach and to go care for people in hospitals and to go serve people in the tech industry, would you remind us of our identity in you and that nothing we have done could lead us to think we deserve that. Instead, let us remember it as a gift. As we unite our voices together in singing, may we remember the power of that gift. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.